Well, good morning. You could take your Bible and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The passage that was read to you earlier in the service was an extended portion from the latter part of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 1. Our text this morning will be focusing just on verse 21, where Paul writes this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So we're in a sermon series, as uh, Pastor Jason and Pastor Jake alluded to, called Behold Your God, Discovering Who God Is and What He Is Like. And uh, each of the sermons in the series, uh, we focused on a particular attribute of God. And uh, like I said last time, an attribute is something that is true about a thing or person. Like if if you were to give the attributes of fire, you'd probably say something like, fire is warm yellow, bright, uh, warmth, yellowness, and brightness are the attributes of fire. But how are we to give the attributes of a God that we can't see? Well, far be it from us to just yank ideas out of our head. That's the guarantee to create a God of our own imagination. If we're to know God, we must know Him as He's revealed Himself to us And he has in the Bible. So to gain an understanding of who God is, we've gone to the Bible. And so far in this series, uh, we've looked, first of all, that the fact that God is knowable. We can actually know him because he revealed to us in his word, specifically through Jesus Christ. We also looked at the fact that he is holy, that he is triune, that is, he is a three-personed God. And then last week, we looked at the fact that God is good. And this week, we're focusing on the fact that God is wise. We're looking at God's wisdom. And our text again is verse 21. And if you have your Bible in front of you, it would would behoove you to read it along with me to get into our minds and hearts where Paul says this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Old Testament tells us of a story of a young prince Uh, who became king. His name was Solomon. And early in Solomon's reign, he had a dream. And in that dream, God spoke to him and said, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon thought about the many things he could ask. He thought about the riches, the gold and silver he would like to have. He thought about the enemies that he had, that he would like for them to be destroyed. He thought about the fame that he could want to have. But then he began to think about the great nation that God had made him king over. He thought about the countless decisions that he he would have to make to rule that kingdom well. And he also felt that he he was just like a little child that didn't know how to make those decisions. And so he said to God, God, if you could give me anything, give me wisdom. I wonder if you feel like you need wisdom this morning. We often feel that we need wisdom when facing big decisions, navigating relationships, or when handling crises. For example, you're a young person. You're trying to decide, where should I go to college? When I get to college, how do I look for a spouse? How do I know who to marry? You're, you're married. How do I know how to invest my money? How to uh, 
how to rear my children. Uh, you're navigating maybe a personal crisis. Maybe somebody at work or at, in your family is putting some kind of pressure on you. Or maybe you feel like someone in your life is withdrawing from you and you don't understand why. And you're not sure what to do. Or maybe you're facing a health crisis. Or maybe you're responsible to care for aging parents. Or maybe you yourself are aging. Your health is declining. And all these things, whether it's a decision that we have to make or whether it's some people in our lives that are putting pressure on us or withdrawing from us, or whether it's a crisis that we're going through, whatever it is, we feel that we need wisdom. Now, the thing that we often fail to see when it comes to wisdom is that wisdom is not just good for the big decisions. Do I turn left or do I turn right? Do I go this direction or this direction or straight forward? But wisdom is also necessary for the countless little micro decisions that we make throughout life that actually determine whether we'll get to those big intersections or not. In that way, it may be helpful to think of wisdom like riding a bicycle. Now, if you don't know how to ride a bicycle yet, I hope you learn that very, very soon without too much injury. But if you already know how to ride a bike, you know that when you have your, your hands on the handlebars, you're, you're making constant micro-adjustments to make sure that you're going in a straight direction so that when you finally come to an intersection, you actually have the opportunity to turn left or right or go straight forward and haven't like ran into a tree or off to a ditch or something. So with is with wisdom. It's not just for the big decisions. It's not just what I'm going to major in in college, who I'm going to marry, uh, how, what career should I pursue, how should I rear my children, how do I care for my aging parents. But it's all those little thousands of micro decisions that we make that guide our course all along the way. For these, we need wisdom. But one of the problems that we encounter when we think about this whole topic of wisdom is that some things we think are a wise choice in our lives, we'll look back on later and think, oh my goodness, that was not a wise choice at all. Has anybody been there before? A few weeks ago, I thought it'd be wise to try out my son's ripstick. I, now, I said, I said ripstick are not lipstick, right? No. I decided it'd be cool, to, it'd be wise to, find, to try out my son's ripstick. A ripstick, if you don't know, is kind of like a skateboard, except it slips out from under your feet really, really fast. My son told me that I was completely horizontal in the air about head level before I began to descend. It didn't feel like a nice slow descent to me. Have you been there where you feel like you made a decision, you thought it was a wise idea at the time, and it soon turned out to be not wise at all? Maybe you're living right now with a decision you've made like that. Here's, another, here's an even more sobering thought. Could it be that the, ch the, the path that you've charted for yourself right now, decisions you're making right now that you think are wise, you'll someday re realize that they are completely foolish? Man, we've got it. We need wisdom. So why are we talking about our wisdom in a sermon and a service dedicated to talking about God's wisdom? Here's the reason. Because God's wisdom is what they call a communicable attribute, which simply means this. It's an attribute of God that He wants to share with us. We know what an attribute is. It's something that's true about a person or thing. Wisdom is an attribute of God that He wants us to have too. It's kind of like this. My wife Krista and I, we don't share our identity with our children. We will always be ourselves. Our children will always be themselves. But we do share other things with them. We share our home with them. We share our love with them. We share our food with them. But we also share something on a deeper level. We share their, 
eye color and hair color and facial features. You see, we will never be God and God will never be us. There is this infinite divide between us and God, like we talked about a few weeks ago. God is holy, and yet God wants to share with us some of His attributes, including wisdom, which means this. God wants us to be wise too. Now, what a tantalizing prospect that I, as a 38-year-old man, can share the wisdom of God that you, children in this room, teenagers in this room, grown-ups in this room, you can have God's wisdom too. The challenge that we face, though, as we look at this whole topic of God's wisdom is this. We have our own ideas about what wisdom is, and yet God's wisdom is completely different. And in the passage that Pastor Jason read to you earlier in the service, you saw this contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. So here's how we're going to proceed as we look at this topic of God's wisdom. We're going to take first the first section of this sermon, the first point, to go to the Old Testament and discover what wisdom is. And then coming to this verse here in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1.21, we're going to see the kind of wisdom that fails, the kind of wisdom that wins, and how to get the wisdom that wins. Okay, so let's jump right into it. Let's first of all ask, what is wisdom? To try to get an understanding of this, of what wisdom uh, really is. So we're, to do that, uh, we're gonna, uh, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to uh, talk about a couple passages from the Old Testament. And the first thing to note is that when, we, when it comes to wisdom in the Old Testament, it's such a, a rich concept. It's kind of like a pocket knife with multiple tools. So if, if, you, if someone says, walks up to you and says, that's a cool pocket knife, what does it do? The question is, well, how much time do you have? Are you going to pull out, you gonna pull out the, screw, the corkscrew, the screwdriver, the nail filer, uh, the uh, whatever other blade you're... Just for our purposes this morning, I'm just going to pull out the main blade when it comes to wisdom in the Old Testament and say that wisdom is a kind of skill. Wisdom is a kind of skill. So the very first occurrence of the the word most often translated wisdom in the Old Testament, we find in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 3. And in that context, God is telling Moses to call people with, and he uses the word wisdom, with wisdom to make garments, splendid garments for the priests to wear when going about their priestly duties. So the idea is this. Moses is saying, I'm calling all people that have a skill to take something beautiful in their minds and bring it into reality. That is the, a skill to take what would be a beautiful garment, a robe, a gown, and with the skill to make that gown a reality. So wisdom is the skill to do the best things in the best way. That's a very concise definition of wisdom. We also see this present in the book of Proverbs talking about God's wisdom. Proverbs 3.19, it says, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations, by understanding He set the heavens in place. The idea is this. When God created the universe, He had this gorgeous, brilliant idea in His mind. He had an idea of a multifaceted universe with stars and planets and a particular planet called planet Earth that's teeming with life. And he had the skill to bring that reality from his mind into reality, uh, that, that idea in his mind into reality. By wisdom, 
He laid the earth's foundations by understanding and set the heavens in place. So wisdom is the skill to do the best things in the best way. Now, wisdom is a skill, a skill to do the best things in the best way, according to the Old Testament usage. But wisdom is also ambiguous. That means that wisdom can be good or bad depending on what your idea of the best thing is. So, for example, if the best thing is to be uh, a ripstick writer, then wisdom is getting on that ripstick again, right? Um, we see this ambiguity and wisdom in the book of Ezekiel, where God is speaking to the king of Tyre. Now, you don't need to know everything about Tyre, the king of Tyre, to understand what's going on here. God is is saying that the king, this particular king has gotten way too proud. He thinks way too much of himself. And he says this in Ezekiel 28, 2 and 4, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. God says to this to the king of Tyre, this proud man that thinks he's a God. By your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself. God is telling a proud man that he has wisdom but not the kind of wisdom that we want to have. It's a kind of skill of using his wealth and his fame for his own purposes because that's what he considers to be the very best thing. So wisdom, we would say, is a skill for doing the best thing in the best ways, but it's ambiguous because it depends on what you think the best thing is. I'll give you a couple examples. Suppose you see someone playing soccer. The camera is just zoomed right up on the soccer player. All you can see is him running across the field, dribbling the ball, weaving in and out of other players. He's coming up toward uh, the goal. He, he kicks the ball into the goal, uh, and the, the goalie makes a valiant effort to knock that ball away, but the ball goes in, and instead of hearing a, crowd, a cheering crowd, everyone's just groaning because this player has been going the opposite direction. He put the ball in the wrong goal. Initially, you might say, just because of that tight angle lens, you might say, wow, what a wise, skillful player, all you need to do is zoom out a little bit and you'll see a wider angle reveals him to be not a wise soccer player at all. So it is with our wisdom. While on a very narrow angled lens, a very narrow angle of, of view of things, something may appear to be really wise, but then just zoom out a little bit and you say, oh, that's not wise at all. Take a, take a man at his work. He's putting all his energy and, atten and attention into, into negotiating contracts and, and coming up with the best, uh, the, uh, and filling his inventory, making all kinds of decisions for his business. And, and from that narrow angle, you, you see, oh, that guy's a really wise businessman. Just zoom out a little bit and you see that man is not just a businessman, he's also a husband. He's also a father. And he spent so much time at work that his kids don't even know him and his wife isn't even getting the affection and, and care from him that, that she needs from him as, as, her, as his, her husband. And, and you see, from one angle, he appears to be a wise man. Zoom out a little bit and you see, well, if the best thing in life were to be a successful businessman, okay, he's a really wise guy. But if you were to say the best thing in life is not just to be the right kind of businessman or businesswoman, the best thing in life is to be the right kind of person, then we have to reevaluate whether we say that's wise or not. See, wisdom is ambiguous because it depends on what you understand the best things to be. Now, this confronts us with a big problem because we tend to think that we ourselves are the most important thing in the universe, in our universe. 
The problem with wisdom is that we put ourselves at the center. And that means that you cannot be truly wise unless you know what the best truly is. I'll say that again. You cannot be truly wise unless you know what the best truly is. Okay, so having given you an understanding of what wisdom is, it's a skill. It's a skill for doing the best thing in the best way, but it's a skill that's ambiguous depending on what the best thing is. Now I take you to 1 Corinthians one twenty-one, and this gives us, a clear, gives us a clearer understanding of what the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God is. Paul says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through, and I want you to, in your mind at least, Put, put the little quotation marks around the word wisdom, because what Paul is doing here is saying, this is wisdom from the world's perspective. Not wisdom from God's perspective, but wisdom. The world did not know God through wisdom. Now, I need to ex- explain a couple things here. What is the world here? And then once I explain what the world is, it'll make sense to, as to what the world's wisdom is. The world here is not the, that, that sphere hanging in outer space that we think of the globe the earth no the world is people in their self-centeredness which is basically everybody in the world it's people in their self-centered way of doing things that's the world so if that's the world then wisdom then the world's wisdom is basically whatever you would do if you were at the center of your universe which is basically how everybody tends to live. That's the world's wisdom. That means that the world's wisdom, Paul is not just talking about education, technology, philosophy, all these kinds of things, all those things, these things that we consider to be wise. He's talking about how we use all of these things, whether for ourselves or for God. The world's wisdom is taking all these things and using them for myself. That's why even religion can be worldly in this sense. If I use religious things, spiritual things, as a way to boost myself, and that is in fact the context in which this verse is. Because Paul is writing to a church of people, and they have been using spiritual leaders to kind of boost their own ego. Some of them are saying, hey, I'm, I'm Paul. I'm a Paul guy. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, well, I'm of Apollos. Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Cephas. Oh, you guys, I'm of Christ. What are they doing? They're taking these spiritual leaders, Christ himself, and they're using them as platforms to stand upon so that people will think better of them. You see, it doesn't take the Internet and social media and TikTok and Facebook and television to make someone worldly. All it takes is a desire to use whatever is going on in my life to inflate my own ego because that's what worldliness is and that's what worldly wisdom is. And that is the kind of wisdom that fails. Paul is saying the world in its wisdom, in leveraging all their skills and ability to inflate themselves, did not know God. Now, I need to ask you this question because we're talking about the the kind of wisdom that fails is worldly wisdom. Why is it that this kind of wisdom fails to know God? The reason is this. Because God, if He will be known, must be known as the highest, the best, the center. 
you cannot know God any other way. You cannot know God as some way of getting what you want. You have to know God as the only thing you want. That's how God must be known. You see, to know God in any other way would be a little bit like, it's, it's kind of like making God a background feature of your selfie. It's supposed, now I've never been to Mount Washington, but suppose I would ask someone, hey, have you seen Mount Washington? And they say, of course I have. I could show you a picture. They pull out their phone and they show me a picture. And right above their right shoulder, it's a picture of themselves, right above the right shoulder, I see this little mound of rocks way in the background. And they point to this. That's Mount Washington. See, Mount Washington is a beautiful background to my selfie I took last fall. Can you really know what Mount Washington is? the highest point in the northeastern United States, if you know it merely as the background feature of your selfie. Now, to know Mount Washington, come up close to it. Climb it. Be humbled by it. God will not be known as a background feature of your selfie, of our selfies, of our own interests. When, when God becomes the way in which we try to fight for the country we love, or when God becomes a means to get the marriage that we want, or when God becomes the means to get the kind of religious or uh, standing we want, God is never known for who He is because God will not be known and cannot be known unless He is known as the very center, the highest, the best, because that's who he is. This is the reason why the world, in its wisdom, Paul says, did not know God. Now, the sobering thing to, re to know about this is that all of us, I, m me and you, all of us, have within our hearts this bent toward making ourselves the most important thing in, the, in our universe. So the question is, if that's true about me, if that's true about you, how will you ever know God? Well, Paul says it here in this verse. He says, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that's worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So, here's what wisdom is, just to read, count to you where we are. Wisdom is a kind of skill for doing the best things in the best ways. It's ambiguous, though, because it depends on what we think the best is. Worldly wisdom is a kind of wisdom that sees self at the center and takes all these different things in our lives and, and turns them into ways I can, I can satisfy myself. And, God, and Paul is saying, God is saying, you're never going to know God that way. The question is, how can we know God? Well, here it is. There's a kind of wisdom that fails. It's a self-centered wisdom, but there is a kind of wisdom that wins and it is God's wisdom. What is God going to do about people who tend to take everything in their life and turn them into a means of their own self-promotion? Here's what God does. He says, he, Paul, Paul says this, through the folly of what we preach. Now, what is the folly of what we preach? Well, look at verse 18. He, sa he tells us here, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What's the word of the cross? The word of the cross is simply this the preaching about the fact that the king of this universe is a person who died on a Roman cross. That's the folly of the cross. 
It's the message of the gospel. It pleased God through the folly of this. There was a man from Nazareth whose name was Jesus. And at the end of his life, he was hung on a Roman cross with a couple of other condemned criminals. But that man is my king and my savior. Now that's foolish in the world's eyes. That's the folly of what we preach. Why does this seem foolish to the world or anyone else who wants to put themselves at the center? Because the message about the cross always puts me off center. And it puts God in the center. It's, I think it's hard for us to understand because we have grown to love and cherish the cross and the cross, even the symbol of the cross, has become the symbol of our faith. And so it seems to us something noble and grand. It's hard for us to get our minds around the fact what a, what a ridiculous looking thing this was. There is a piece of masonry, like an old brick or something that was found in, um, near Rome, near the city of Rome. It dates back to the early 200s. Um, and it was a, there was a crude picture etched into this piece of stone. It was a picture of a man with his arms outstretched on a cross. But this man had a head of a donkey. And next to this man and below this figure on a cross, there was a, a crude sketch of another man looking up at the cross with his hand outstretched. And below that picture, in misspelled words, it was obviously done hastily, was this sentence. Alexamenos worships his God. And it was meant to be hilarious. Because whoever heard of someone worshiping a crucified criminal? And whoever heard of someone saying that that crucified man is now the king of the world that we should obey and follow? And yet this is the message that Paul and the other apostles and the Christians are saying, Jesus, the crucified one, he is my king, and I'm following him. And what Paul is saying is this, the, the word of the cross, the message about the cross is foolishness. It looks stupid to the world. Why? Because it puts self off to the side and it puts God at the center. You cannot rightly understand the cross and have an inflated ego. It pops your ego. It puts you to the side and it puts God in the center. That's why the only way you can truly be wise is by being confronted with what Christ did for you at the cross. On the cross, God reveals himself for who he really is. God, again, will never be known as a background feature of your selfie or as the way you get what you want to get. He'll be only known as he displays himself on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God himself is so multifaceted. Like a diamond. On one side here is the facet of God's love in which he 
pours himself out for people. But on the other facet here is God's justice. He will not break his rules. The other facet here is God's mercy in which he withholds the judgment from those who deserve it. And this other facet here is his righteousness and and his wrath in which he must pour out his judgment upon, upon sin. Where will we ever get a view of God in which His multifaceted nature explodes upon our our eyes and consciousness only as we see what He did for us at the cross? Because at the cross, you see the facet of God's love. He gave Himself to us. And yet in giving Himself to us and dying there, He bore the punishment that we deserve. So we see the facet of his love and mercy, of his righteousness and justice. That's why at the cross is displayed the wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God that humbles us and exalts him and reveals God to be not just a way to get what I need, but God to be the very one I need. That's what we see when we see the cross. We see the wisdom of God on full display. For in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness, the ridiculousness of the cross to save those who believe. Now, how do we get this wisdom? We looked at what wisdom is. We looked at the wisdom that fails. It's the worldly wisdom. The wisdom that wins is God's wisdom as displayed in the cross of Christ. How do I get that? Well, the answer here, again, is in our text. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, it's the last word in the verse, who believe. The way to get this wisdom is to entrust your life to this crucified Savior. Another way to put that is in chapter 3 and verse 18. If you have your Bible open, you can flip over to it. Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. (laughs) What is Paul saying here? He's saying this, Go ahead, be a fool. In the world's eyes, that is. What does he mean? Do the most foolish thing the world, the thing that the world would consider most foolish. Entrust your life to someone who is crucified and rose again. Confess how deeply flawed you really are. And endeavor to follow him and obey him till the day you die. From the world's perspective, that is utter folly. If you think you're wise in this world, if you think you're clever and successful, go ahead, you need to be a fool. And by that is simply this, trust the wisdom of God. That's the only way to be wise. Now, the main point of this is that the wisdom of God is offered to us at the cross of Christ. And we receive it by trusting Christ. But if that's the case, that means a few things for us. First of all, 
Because God's wisdom is revealed in the cross of Christ, that means that we can humbly admit our foolishness. There's only one thing that will unbind you from your just hating to admit you're wrong. And that is seeing that, yes, while you're wrong, God is still showing his love for you. You see, that frees you to admit how flawed you are and how wrong you are and how foolish you've been. You remember earlier I said, it could be that you're making decisions right now that you think are wise and they're actually foolish from this perspective. They're all about you. They're all about a way to make me better, me more successful, me look a little cooler, a little more relevant, a little more right, a little smarter, a little more successful. And you realize, I have chosen the best thing, the, I've chosen maybe the best ways, but I've chosen the wrong thing. Now I see the cross of Christ. I see God in His glory. I see that the best thing ever is to have a relationship with God. Okay, now I can admit that that, is, that was a wrong thing. That was, that was completely foolish. Because God shows you and offers to you His wisdom in the cross of Christ, you can admit how flawed you are. I can admit how, admit how flawed I am. Second, because God displays and offers His wisdom to you in the cross of Christ, you do not need to be ashamed of the cross. You don't need to be ashamed of being a Christian. You don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. Some of you labor in work environments in which the fact that you're a Christian is just unbelievable to the people that you work with. Why would you, why would you be that? Why would you believe that way? Why, why would you believe that God has actually revealed himself to you in this book? Aren't there many ways to God? Why would you believe that your God is a crucified Jew from the first century who rose again? That's, it seems unbelievable to people. And yet, the Bible tells us, Paul says this in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's, he's using, he's using uh, hyperbole there. He said, of course I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's way of saving people. You don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is God's way of offering his wisdom to you through the cross of Christ. Now, here's a third implication of this truth that God offers you his wisdom at the cross of Christ. This one may, be, may surprise you, but it'll make sense in just a few moments. Since God offers you his wisdom in the cross of Christ, join and get involved in a church. You're like, I don't see the connection there. <laughs> here's the connection. When Paul, is, when Paul made this statement, he was making a statement to people who were trying to boost themselves by their, act, by, their, by their activity in church, by their following a certain spiritual leader. And Paul is saying this. You know, look at yourselves. He's, look, look at this in verse, um, verse 26. He said, look at yourselves. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's saying, you, you are a very humble lot of people. God did not need a team of Fortune 500 CEOs to prove his greatness on this earth. He did not need a team of, of movie stars to prove his greatness. He takes just normal people like you and me to show what a great God he is. 
He's pulling people across every strata of, of, of the economy, every, every kind of race, every kind of personality type, every language, and he's pulling ordinary, no, not just ordinary people, deeply flawed people to show what a great Savior he is. You see what the church is? It is not a way to bring attention to ourselves. The church is a theater of God's glory. This is what it, this is what it means to be a church. And that's why the fact that there are different kinds of people in this church, yes, people that you might not choose to hang out with all the time, is actually a good thing for all of us. Because it shows the diversity of God's God and His desire to bring glory to Himself through a great variety of people. You will see the glory of God in ways that you couldn't have imagined by encountering ways God is changing people very unlike you. How do you do that? You do that by getting involved in a local church. You say, I'm visiting from out of town, or I'm just, I'm just passing through here. Find a church that preaches the Bible faithfully and get involved with it and go to it every Sunday and learn and get connected with that. And those of you that are here, get connected in this church so you can see the wisdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that the church is the way in which the multifaceted wisdom of God is on display. It's kind of like a prism, P-R-I-S-M, that diffracts light. The light of God's glory shines through the prism of the church, and when it passes through the prism, you see the rainbow color, you see God's glory in its, in its multicolored nature. In fact, in one of Peter's letters, he says that what God is doing in the church, even angels are looking down to see what's going on. Angels aren't interested in what's going on in Hollywood this morning, my friends, nor in all the skyscrapers in New York City. What he's interested, what angels are fascinated by is what God is doing right here this morning and in countless churches across the world. Because through the church, the wisdom of God is displayed. Ordinary people worshiping an extraordinary God. And finally, because God displays his wisdom in the cross and offers that wisdom to us it means that you can see all the events in your life as being ordered by God's good providence you see in God's wisdom he has brought you here this morning in God's wisdom he had you had that difficult conversation last week that email that that surprised and troubled you that diagnosis that made you and your spouse and your family worried, that's all in God's wisdom. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is shaping for you a cross-shaped life in which trials and struggles become the pathway to his good purpose for you, just like we learned last week about the goodness of God. This is God's wisdom displayed in the cross of Christ. Eric Little, some of you are familiar with that name. If you're not, you may know the, the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Little, um, he was a Scottish athlete, a rugby player and a runner. The movie focuses on his winning the 400-yard dash. But what the movie doesn't say, except for a small epilogue at the very end, is that after that really internationally famous event, Eric Little returned to the land that he had grown up in, which was not Scotland, but China, because his parents were Christian missionaries there. 
He went there in 1925, and he was there until 1943. Eric Little, of course, was a famous, world-famous athlete, but he returned to a very poor and dangerous area of China. And when the Japanese took over China, Eric Little and many other foreigners were taken to a prison camp where he began to help organize the safety and the nourishment, the dietary needs of the people there. Other people in the camp would later write about Eric Little's kindness and compassion and how hard he worked to care for children. He would teach kids that were in that prison camp Bible lessons. He'd help care for the elderly while suffering greatly himself. He developed a brain tumor, got very sick, and eventually he died in that prison camp five months before they were released. During his life, someone asked Eric Little if he'd ever regretted his decision to leave behind the fame and glory of athletics. And Little responded, and I'm not going to try to do the Scottish brogue for you, by the way, but he responded, it's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. Little's last words were as he lay on a, a bed there in the Japanese prison camp. It's complete surrender. And by that he meant his complete surrender to the wise and loving will of God. Eric Little's life echoed what a missionary martyr later would say, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you, like young Solomon, say, God, if you would give me anything, give me wisdom? God has given you the answer. See it in the cross of Christ and live a life of wisdom by trusting and following Jesus. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. It's a way that we see the gospel. But before we do, may I ask that we take some quiet moments here to reflect on what we have heard. You may need to pray. You may need to confess some foolish things you have pursued to God. This may be the quietest moment you ever have all week. So use it to talk to God about what you've heard. Our Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts as we reflect on what you've done for us by sending your Son to the cross to pay for our sins. We thank you for your wisdom, and we pray this in Jesus' name.